Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is 2 February 6th and I'm your reader Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette, a photo is titled Holiday D Light. Snow delayed the removal of a holiday light display, including the sunburst in Cedar Rapids. And the photo shows Michael Jackson with Shamrock Productions of Bristol, Tennessee, as he dismantles a light fixture that illuminated the way to the company's Christmas Wonderland drive through light show Monday at Hawkeye Downs Speedway and Expo Center in southwest Cedar Rapids. The snow and severe weather conditions postponed the removal of the last of the displays. The multicolored fixture displayed a sunburst effect similar to a firework exploding at the entrance to the property along 6th Street Southwest. And the photo is credited to Jim Slazierik for the Gazette. From the front page, Why do Des Moines schools not use the AEA? This story by Grace King. When area education agencies were created by the Iowa legislature five decades ago, Des Moines Public Schools was not included in the plan to provide vital resources and training to educators and families in the state's school districts. As the largest school district in Iowa, with more than 30,000 students today, Des Moines Public already employed many who provided the special education services. It was anticipated that there may be circumstances that would require some flexibility, and Des Moines Public Schools is a good example of that said Phil Roeder, spokesperson for the Des Moines system. As the largest school district in the state, we were already offering a variety of programs and supports for students with disabilities. These supports included school psychologists, special education consultants, and speech pathologists. It was decided that it simply did not make sense to terminate school district staff only to be rehired by the AEA to serve in the same capacity and provide the same supports to our students, he said. Some state lawmakers are using Des Moines Public Schools as an example of how overhauling AEAs and allowing districts' choice in how special education services are provided to their students could work. The most recent version of Reynolds's proposed bill would give school districts the ability to opt out of their AEA special education services and seek them from another party or another AEA. There currently are nine in Iowa. The governor has said the overhaul is necessary as test scores of Iowa students with disabilities have lagged in national comparisons, even though the state spends a comparatively high amount serving them. Cindy Yellick, Chief Administrator of the Heartland AEA that serves central Iowa around the Des Moines area, said area education agencies created a, or excuse me, create a conglomerate, providing more support to educators and families than most districts could afford individually. We're talking about improving student achievement, particularly for those with disabilities. That's a very, very complicated problem to solve, Yellick said. Using Des Moines Public Schools as a model for how schools could deliver services to students outside the local AEA is reducing the much larger problem of student achievement, Yellick said. The proposed bill would drive up the cost for education experts and services, pitting school districts and AEAs against each other, Yellick said. Some rural school districts, such as Moulton Udell in Appanoose County, might need only a part-time speech-language pathologist, for example. 
but hired under the AEA, the rest of that speech-language pathologist's time can be spent at another school district, such as Ottumwa's. With staffing shortages in many areas, including education, school psychology, and speech-language pathologists, we need the system for kids to be as efficient as possible so we can capitalize on the staff we do have, Yellick said. When you break it apart, we're really concerned about how this will work in rural Iowa. Reynolds's plan would create a division of special education within the Iowa Department of Education. That would take about $20 million that now goes to the AEAs, using it to hire 139 workers who would focus on special education and assume oversight of the AEAs. The bill would centralize much of the oversight and operations under the Department of Education. The director would be in charge of appointing AEA chief administrators, combining or dissolving AEAs, and approving AEA budgets. Heartland AEA provides services to more than 11,000 educators and almost 150,000 children in central Iowa. While Des Moines Public Schools does not rely on the Area Education Agency to support special ed services in its district, Heartland is a key partner, Roeder said. There are 14 staff members at Heartland AEA assigned to the school district to provide educational supports, including pre-K 8th grade consultants with a literary focus, elementary and middle school consultants with a math focus, social, emotional, behavioral, mental health consultants, science consultants, a consultant for the gifted and talented program, and a computer science consultant. Because Des Moines Public Schools already was providing for the special ed needs of students, it didn't make sense some 50 years ago to terminate school district staff, Rodier said. Another reason Des Moines Public Schools made the decision to keep most of its services in-house is because the district at the time offered employees two retirement plan options, the state's Iowa Public Employees Retirement System and the Des Moines Teachers Retirement System. Both retirement plans were started in the early 1950s. The AEAs were a part of IPERS only, while the Des Moines Teachers Retirement System was specific to Des Moines Public Schools. If employees left to work for another school district or agency, they would have had to change benefits, including their retirement savings plan. Today, all new Des Moines public school employees are enrolled in IPERS, while employees who already were participating in the Des Moines Teachers Retirement System continue in that plan. Turning to page 2 on the Iowa Today page, meet the four finalists for Cedar Rapids Police Chief. This story by Marissa Payne. The public is invited to meet four finalists for Cedar Rapids Police Chief as the city approaches an end to the nearly year-long search. The four candidates, Jennifer Burkhofer, Jeff Coday, Tim Whitten, or excuse me, Tom Whitten, and David Dostal, were selected by the Cedar Rapids Civil Service Commission last week, and all four were approved by City Manager Jeff Pomerantz to move on to in-person interviews. Each of the candidates will be interviewed Wednesday by five panels of city and community leaders. A public meet and greet with the candidates will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. that evening at the Cedar Rapids Doubletree by Hilton Convention Center, 350 First Avenue Northeast. 
There will be no formal presentations at this event. Following this week's interviews and meet and greet, Pomerantz will identify two final candidates and he may visit the candidates' current departments and communities. The final step will be Pomerantz's appointment of a chief with the advice and consent of the mayor and council. Under, under consideration are Jennifer Burkhofer. Current position is Lieutenant at Douglas County Sheriff's Office in Omaha, Nebraska. 147 sworn officers make up the department size with a $22.3 million budget. Previously, Jennifer has held jobs at Pottawatomie County and Iowa Corrections Officer. Her education is bachelor's in psychology and master's in public administration. She is a graduate of the FBI National Academy. Jeff Coday is currently captain at the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department in Nevada. The department size is 3,401 commissioned positions with a $784.8 million budget. Previously, he has been a police officer for the Springfield, Missouri Police Department. Education includes a bachelor's in biology and master's in crisis and emergency management, a graduate of Northwestern University School of Police Staff and Command, and the National FBI Academy. Tom Winton is currently Chief Deputy for the El Paso County Sheriff's Office in Texas. The department size there is more than 1,000, with a $120 million budget. Previous jobs include police chief in Harlingen, Texas, police chief in Carlsbad, New Mexico, police chief in DeWitt, Iowa, several positions including assistant chief of police in the El Paso, Texas Police Department, and a sergeant in the U.S. Air Force. He has a bachelor's in criminal justice administration, master's degrees in criminal justice administration and public administration, and is a graduate of the FBI National Academy. And finally, David Dostal currently is captain in the Administrative Operations Division of the Cedar Rapids Police Department. They have 270 full-time equivalents and a $48.2 million budget. Previous jobs include multiple positions within the Cedar Rapids Police Department, and David has a bachelor's in sociology. Also on Iowa Today page, this story by Grace King, Mount Vernon looks to Clear Creek Amana for superintendent. Matthew Lehman, a leader in the Clear Creek Amana Community School District, has been named the next superintendent for the Mount Vernon Community School District. Lehman, age 42, currently is the Clear Creek Amana School's associate superintendent and 6th through 12th grade curriculum director. He has experience serving as a building administrator across grades K through 12 in various roles at Clear Creek Amana and other Iowa districts. Year one will be a year of listening, getting to know the staff and figuring out if there are areas to improve and not making assumptions, Lehman said. Mount Vernon has a very strong reputation in our area. It's a very great place to be. Even so, Lima said it will be bittersweet to leave Clear Creek Amana, where he has been for almost a decade. Greg Battenhorst, current superintendent in Mount Vernon, who is retiring this summer, said Lehman is a team player, personable and easy to work with. 
People who had him as a principal said he was a strong supporter of kids and students, Batenhorst said. Lehman will begin his role leading the Mount Vernon Community School District on July 1. The contract with his salary and other benefits hasn't been finalized yet. The Mount Vernon School Board worked with Ray and Associates, Inc., an educational leadership search firm, to conduct the search for superintendent. Lehman interviewed with groups including students, teachers, support staff, and administrators in the Mount Vernon district. Community forums also were held for community members to meet Lehman and offer feedback. Batenhorst said that in interviews, it was clear Lehman did his homework on Mount Vernon and knew the strengths and the challenges moving forward. Lehman was one of three finalists to be considered for superintendent, and he rose to the, co- to the top across all stakeholder groups, Batenhorst said. Lehman began his career in education 20 years ago as a kindergarten teacher in Postville Community School District in Postville. His current responsibilities include day-to-day operations, supervision of administrators and directors across seven school campuses, oversight of curricular materials, and active involvement in hiring staff and district-wide budget development. Most recently, Lehman helped with the passage of a $65 million general obligation bond, reconsideration of district boundaries, and the planning of a new elementary school building and other upcoming facility needs in the Clear Creek Amana School District. He and his wife, Lori, and their sons, Miles and Xander, live in Tiffin. The family plans to move to Mount Vernon, pending buying a new house, Lehman said. Outside of the office, he enjoys fishing, hunting, being outdoors, and spending time with his family and friends. Batenhorst is ending his contract with the district a year early, after almost 40 years in education. Under his leadership, the district began a 20-year vision in 2017. Residents approved a $12.8 million general obligation bond, a referendum, to build a new performing arts center, which opened in the spring of 2020. Add a two-classroom addition and secure entry to the middle school and two-classroom additions at Washington Elementary School. Also in Iowa Today News, Marion Mann is sentenced to more than 20 years for distributing meth, this story by Trish Mahaffey. A Marion man who sold over 30 pounds of methamphetamine was sentenced last month to more than 20 years in federal prison. Robert Lee Michael Bates, age 31, previously pleaded guilty in U.S. District Court to one count of conspiracy to distribute meth. Evidence from previous hearings in a meth trafficking ring that involved Bates and 11 others showed David Belton, also known as Blood, and others coordinated shipments of between 30 and 60 pounds of ice meth between Los Angeles and Cedar Rapids from 2017 and March 2022. Belton paid others to transport the ice meth, typically in a vehicle that contained a specially made hidden compartment. Once the drugs arrived in Cedar Rapids, Belton or his associates would distribute the meth to others who sold the drugs to customers. According to evidence, investigators used wiretaps on phones used by the trafficking ring and intercepted calls that included Bates. He was ordering pounds of ice meth and 100 ecstasy pills from the others. 
U.S. District Judge C.J. Williams sentenced Bates to 248 months in prison and ordered him to serve five years of supervised release following his prison term. Bates is the last of 12 co-defendants in the investigation to be sentenced. Kayante Level Sowell sentenced to 12 years. Albert Henry Bailey was sentenced to over seven years. Jesus Vera was sentenced to over 12 years. Caleb Joseph Storley sentenced to over 16 years. Christopher Eric Curley sentenced to over 14 years. David Poitier Belton sentenced to over 33 years. Derek Michael Mims sentenced to 30 years. Philip Linnell Rogers sentenced to over 11 years. Anton Therese Whitney Jr. sentenced to 18 years. Elmer Mims was sentenced to over 19 years. Timothy Michael Weber was sentenced to over 15 years. The case was prosecuted by Assistant U.S. Attorney Dan Chatham. It was investigated as part of the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force Program of the U.S. Department of Justice through a cooperative effort of the Drug Enforcement Administration Task Force in Cedar Rapids and the FBI. The DEA Task Force in Cedar Rapids consists of the DEA, Lynn County Sheriff's Office, Cedar Rapids and Marion Police Departments, and the Iowa Division of Narcotics Enforcement. Also in Iowa Today News, this story by Aaron Jordan, C60 cleanup still not done 14 months later. Nearly 14 months after an explosion at a Marengo manufacturing plant, environmental cleanup continues, a state official said Monday. Iowa Department of Natural Resources Director Kayla Lyon told an appropriations subcommittee Monday the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the DNR are making progress on cleaning up the C60 site, where a December 8, 2022 explosion and fire injured nine employees, caused an evacuation of nearby houses, and polluted soil and water. C60 was an anomaly. It's an unfortunate situation, Lyon said, but we've gotten to the point where we've made really great strides to get it cleaned up. The target date for C60 to remove all waste off-site was October 11. Representative Sammy Sheets, a Democrat from Cedar Rapids, asked Lyon on Monday to let lawmakers know when the site is completely cleaned up. She said she would do so. When the Gazette asked the DNR on Monday what work remains to be done, the agency said the EPA was the lead on the cleanup efforts. The EPA said in September that C60 and the contractor were considering options for disposing of contaminated soil. At that point, the company was planning to take contaminated water to a facility in Harper, Kansas. The DNR sued C60 last summer to try to recover $1.5 million spent at that point on the environmental cleanup and to replace first responder gear damaged fighting the blaze. The company's insurance carrier paid $640,121 in September to reimburse Iowa for the first responder equipment, but C60 still has not paid the $892,740 for the cleanup court record state. That trial is scheduled for September 24 in Iowa County. C60, which opened in 2020, 
and had about 30 employees, was attempting to dissolve used shingles into oil, sand, and fiberglass when a mechanical failure ignited flammable vapor, investigators said. The plant's sprinkler system, hydrants, and alarms were not working at the time, according to first responders. Kelly Reganold of Tama suffered severe burns on one-third of his body in the blast, according to a lawsuit Reganold filed in Iowa County. Cody Blasberg was severely burned and was put temporarily on a ventilator because of his injuries, his family said. Iowa OSHA originally found 15 serious violations at the plant, each carrying an $8,701 penalty for a total of $130,515. The agency and C60 reached a settlement May 26 that the company would pay $95,711 by June 19. That fine had not been paid by mid-July, but there was no update available on Monday. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest column today by Tom Christofiak, Thomas Jefferson, and Climate Change. My admiration for Thomas Jefferson is immense. Author of the Declaration of Independence, a president who helped forge the strength and stability of our nation, he passionately defended our rights, our freedom, and our security. And yet, when it came to the most morally troubling issue facing facing the new nation, slavery, Jefferson decided to kick that can down the road. He wrote in 1825 about the need to dismantle slavery. Quote, I leave its accomplishment as the work of another generation. End quote. Biographer John Meacham called this an extra, extremely rare case of the innovative, ever-curious, inventive Jefferson, refusing to engage in work he knew to be essential, and so he did what he almost never did. He gave up. Refusing to engage in work he knew to be essential. That describes, with chilling accuracy, the way our current leaders are treating the climate crisis, the level of human suffering that will result result from our inadequate response to climate change constitutes the most troubling moral issue facing humanity today. The overall approach of our leaders is, once again, to kick that can down the road. Not only will that other generation need to take on the hard work and sacrifices of implementing the solutions we still are postponing, they also will feel the harsh brunt of the suffering that will continue to intensify. We must remember that this other generation is not an abstraction. It is our children and our grandchildren and their descendants for decades and possibly centuries to come. This is the grim inheritance we are leaving them, a world far less safe than the one we grew up in, filled with climate-driven disasters and the heartbreak, struggles, and losses they will bring. And unless we act boldly and very soon, the effects will be worse than most of us can imagine. The Biden administration has done more than any other to address climate change, but it has been limited by opposition that drags against real climate progress like the heaviest anchor. The fossil fuel industry and politicians aligned with it would have us ignore the virtually unanimous warnings of the world's climate scientists who clearly see the level of destruction that is coming. 
We need to stop kicking this can down the road. Solutions exist today, and even better solutions can be developed with a bold infusion of will and resources. We have performed miraculous transformations in the past, as when we rose up to end the Second World War, when the entire nation got engaged and made sacrifices, when we reorganized entire industries and created revolutionary technological breakthroughs. Our leaders at that time had the foresight and the guts to actually lead because so much was at stake. Everything is at stake now. It is beyond time for us to take responsibility of our increasingly deranged climate. That begins with making a commitment to elect leaders with the same foresight, guts, and compassion as those who led us to victory in World War II. Our commitment must be clear, demanding, and unambiguous. And Tom Christofiak is a writer and software engineer living in Fairfield and co-founder of Climate Action Iowa. And this guest column, submitted by Dr. Michael Brooks, is titled, Urging Iowa to Prioritize Precision Medicine. Iowans can look forward to more individualized health care thanks to a bill under consideration by the legislature, SSB 3001, sponsored by Senator Waylon Brown, if passed, would broaden insurance coverage for biomarker testing, providing an opportunity for more individualized treatment for Iowa patients. Biomarker testing, which identifies diseases at a molecular level, has traditionally been used in oncology treatment. However, this bill aims to improve coverage, not only for cancer, but for other diseases, such as rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, and Alzheimer's. As a rheumatologist, I believe that the passage of SSB 3001 would empower healthcare professionals to deliver more personalized care to our patients. Many individuals I've treated over the years face debilitating conditions that without timely interventions could lead to a significantly decreased quality of life. For instance, Patients with rheumatoid arthritis often undergo treatment that requires medication to be administered by infusion, which can be time-consuming and burdensome. Through the use of biomarker testing, we can ensure a more informed and targeted approach to treatment, making sure the time spent in treatment will deliver the desired results. This, in turn, saves patients time and money by foregoing other treatments that are not right for them. With access to biomarker testing, we can be more certain from the start which treatment option is best for each patient and start treating diseases before they progress. SSB 3001 is not only a positive step toward excuse me, forward for individual patients, but holds the promise of addressing a critical gap in our healthcare system. Historically, there has been an imbalance in testing rates particularly among minority patients and those in rural and minority communities. Increased coverage for testing can help close that gap. To truly enhance Iowa's health care system, we must prioritize quality, equity, and access in the conversation surrounding biomarker testing. By making biomarker tests more accessible, we can ensure that all patients, regardless of race, age, or economic status receive the best possible care. 
ensuring access to biomarker tests through legislation such as SSB 3001 is critical to promoting patient-centered health care policies. This legislation recognizes the pivotal role of precision medicine in modern health care and enables clinicians to incorporate advanced medical technologies into everyday care. We must ensure that every patient has the opportunity to access these tests. Michael Brooks is a retired rheumatologist in Cedar Rapids. And one community letter today, Freedom of Religion Extends Beyond Christianity. Leland Graber's letter on January 10 was a hodgepodge of selective outrage and Christian nationalist rhetoric showcasing a profound ignorance regarding constitutional protections. As a proud atheist defender of constitutional rights, I would like to remind Leland that freedom of religion and speech applies universally. Calling the Satanic Temple display an attack on the Constitution while defending a tantrum-throwing vandal reeks of Christian nationalism. Applauding violence against another religion's expression is hypocritical and un-American as well. Suggesting that Satanic Islands are neither religious nor moral reveals a lack of understanding about our neighbors. Some of the most moral, loving, and giving individuals I know embrace the phrase, Hail Satan! Newsflash! Satanists are thriving and live across Iowa. Commending Michael Cassidy, our Navy veteran hero, exposes selective outrage, prioritizing hurt feelings over property damage, a contradiction to the true spirit of liberty in our secular country. Your plea for divine intervention appears desperate. Our Constitution is inherently secular and needs no God or divine blessings. Rather than advocating for pardons and criticizing a religion about which you seem uninformed, I urge you to embody the authentic spirit of liberty. It entails recognizing that even individuals with extreme religious beliefs, including the most fervent Christian nationalists, deserve their constitutional rights. Save the pearl-clutching and holy pronouncements, and never forget that America, in all its messy glory, thrives on inclusion, even for Satan lovers and godless heathens like myself. And that is signed today by Justin Scott of Denver. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. It's Tuesday, February 6th on IRIS. And now we turn to today's obituaries, beginning with the short notices. First from Kyoto, Patricia, known as Patty Horning, age 62 of Kyoto, died Sunday, February 4. Powell Funeral Home and Cremation Service. And from Marion, Donald, known as Don Dean Anderson, formerly of Marion, died Thursday, January 25th. Hike Funeral Home in Redfield, South Dakota, is in charge of arrangements. In Des Moines, memorial services for Robert Lee Jackson are scheduled for Saturday, February 10, from 12 to 4 p.m., that's at 1285 3rd Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids. Turning now to the regular notices, first in Cedar Rapids, James K., known as Jim or Coach or Jeff Barnes, passed away February 1st at Cottage Grove Place in Cedar Rapids. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and 
cremation service is assisting the family. James was born August 7, 1936 in Oskaloosa to James F. and Mary J. Caprick Barnes. After living in several towns in eastern Iowa, he graduated high school from West Union High with the class of 1952. He attended Upper Iowa University in Fayette. Per Jim's request, there will be no services. And in lieu of flowers and cards, memorials in his name are directed to Dogs Forever or the Fellowship Club in Cedar Rapids. Please share a memory of Jim at MurdochFuneralHome.com. From Iowa City, Timothy B., known as Tim Cook, age 58, of Iowa City and Pleasant Hill, died Saturday at home. Visitation will begin at 10 a.m. Friday, February 9, at Lansing Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City, followed by the funeral service at 11 a.m., officiated by Rev. Alberta Irvin. A luncheon will follow at the Kirkwood Room. Graveside committal will be at at 1.30 p.m. Friday at Oakland Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to the Friends of the Animal Center Foundation, or FACF. Tim was committed to rescuing animals, as he did with his TJ. Tim was born January 2, 1966, in Iowa City, the son of William and Carla Hughes Cook. He was a 1984 graduate of Iowa City City High School and received his bachelor's degree from the University of Iowa. In 1992, he received his Juris Doctorate from the University of Kansas, Lawrence. Online condolences can be left at lansingfuneral.com. In Cedar Rapids, Glenn Edward Ebert, age 95, passed away Sunday, February 4, at St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Funeral services are at 11 a.m. Thursday, February 8, at Trinity St. James United Methodist Church. Visitation to begin one hour prior. Burial will be at Maple Grove Cemetery in Audubon. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids assisted the family. Glenn was born November 19, 1928 in Iowa City, the son of Fred and Marie Hallett Ebert. He graduated from Roosevelt High School in 1947, where he lettered in basketball and met his future bride, Grace, who was a cheerleader. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Trinity St. James United Methodist Church, Methwick Community, or the charity of your choice. Please share a memory of Glenn at MurdochFuneralHome.com. From Dayton, Ohio, Sheila M. Miller O'Hare, age 74, of Dayton, formerly of Cedar Rapids, died Tuesday, January 30. Services are at 12 uh, p.m. on Thursday, February 8 at Morton and Whetstone Funeral Home. That's at 139 South Dixie Drive in Vandalia, Ohio. From Cedar Rapids, Alice Jean Hoffmeyer, age 88, died Sunday, February 4. Services are at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday at Bethany Lutheran Church the Reverend Ted Groth. Burial is at 2.30 p.m. Thursday at Loudon Cemetery in Loudon. Friends may visit with the family on Wednesday from 4 to 7 at Tian Funeral Home. Alice's full obituary will be published in Wednesday's Gazette. From Cedar Rapids, Cheryl Dean Beechler, age 97, passed away Tuesday, January 9, at the Keystones of Cedar Rapids. 
The family will greet friends from 10 to 11 a.m. on Friday, February 9, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. A memorial service will follow at 11 a.m. The celebration of life is planned for later that evening from 4 to 7 p.m. at Parlor City Pub and Eatery in Cedar Rapids. Cheryl was born May 27, 1926, in Medelia, Minnesota, the daughter of Clifford and Nellie Esther Mowbray Mather. On July 30, 1948, Cheryl married Robert or Bob James Beechler in Palo, Iowa. She graduated from the Army Cadet Nurses Corps at Mercy Hospital during World War II. Memorials in Cheryl's memory may be directed to the charity of your choice. Please share a memory of Cheryl at MurdochFuneralHome.com. From Cedar Rapids, Rafe Kenjar, age 92, of 3609 Bluebird Drive Southwest, passed away at home surrounded by his daughters on Monday, February 5. A visitation will be held Tuesday, February 6, from 4 to 7 p.m. at Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, 2121 Bowling Street Southwest. Friends may greet the family. Interment will take place Wednesday, February 7th at 12 p.m. at the Muslim National Cemetery. Reef was born January 5, 1932, in the village of Jekvi, a small village in Sansky, most in the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, formerly Yugoslavia. He spent his early years in the care of his grandparents during World War II. Donations can be directed to the Islamic Center of America or the charity of your choice. Online condolences are welcome at broschapel.com. And lastly, from Anamosa, Dennis Bain, age 76, died Sunday, February 4, at his home following a sudden illness. Friends may call from 7 until, or excuse me, from 4 until 7, Thursday evening, February 8th at the Getch Funeral Home in Anamosa. A remembrance service will be held at 11 a.m. Friday morning at the Getch Funeral Home. Pastor Holly Knaus will officiate at the services. Interment will be at the Riverside Cemetery at a later date. Memorial Fund has been established. Dennis was born February 22, 1947 at Anamosa, the son of Ralph and Wilma Marshall Bain. He graduated from Monticello Community School in 1965 and married Sandra Ellison, July 10, 1965. Turning now to the sports page, this boys basketball story is by Jeff Johnson. North Lynn goes back to the top in Class 1A. Back to the top, that's where North Lynn's boys basketball team went this week. The Iowa High School Athletic Association's rankings have the links at the top spot in Class 1A, moving up from third a week ago. A 69-60 win this past Friday night at previous number 1 Bellevue Marquette turned the trick. North Lynn, at 17-1, went from first to second a couple of week, uh, weeks ago after a loss to Albernet and slipped from second to third last week despite not losing. I saw that, and it kind of pissed me off, said North Lynn guard Mason Beckon. We kind of came into this game against Marquette as the underdogs, and I think that kind of helped. I do think we deserve a number one seed in the postseason. I think we can go down to Des Moines and make a run. North Lynn, 
and Marquette at 20 and 1, flip-flopped spots from a week ago, with Madrid at 17 and 2 remaining second. Kyoto at 19 and 0 stayed at number 6, Linville Sully at 19 and 1 is number 7, and Lansing Key 18 and 2 is at number 10. There is a new top-ranked team in Class 2A, that's Western Christian, 16-2, which went from 2nd to 1st despite a 22-point loss Saturday night to Class 4A, number 4, Sioux City East. West Lyon, at 18-1, lost its first game to Unity Christian last week and fell from 1st to 3rd. Hudson, at 18-1, stayed at 2nd. Monticello, at 16-2, lost last week to Northeast, but remained in the top 10 at number 9. The Panthers were 5th a week ago. Cedar Rapids Kennedy at 17-0 again is the top-ranked team in Class 4A. The Cougars have a delectable matchup tonight at number 2 Iowa City West with a record of 15-1. Fellow Mississippi Valley Conference members Dubuque Sr. and Cedar Falls inched up the 4A rankings, Sr. going from 7th to 5th, and Cedar Falls from 9th to 6th. In Class 3A, the top five remained identical. Clear Lake at 17-0 is first. Adel ADM at 15-1 is second. Waverly Shell Rock at 15-2 is third. Solon at 17-0 is fourth. And Decorah at 16-2 is fifth. Decorah and Waverly Shell Rock play Friday night at Waverly. WSR won the first game between the Northeast Iowa mates, 84-57. to In sports of area interest today, lots of girls and boys basketball. Xavier at Prairie for the girls at 7.30, Liberty at Jefferson. Iowa City West is at Kennedy. City High at Washington. Centerpoint Urbana at Marion. Dubuque Hempstead at Linmar and Regina at West Liberty. On the boys' side, Prairie is at Xavier, Kennedy at Iowa City West, Jefferson at Liberty, Washington is at City High, Marion is at Centerpoint Urbana tonight, Regina at West Liberty, and Linmar at Dubuque Hempstead. In high school bowling, City High, Vinton Shellsburg are at Marion at the Cedar Rapids Bowling Center, that's at 3 p.m., and Linmar is at Dubuque Senior at Cherry Lanes at 2.30. If you're listening on the radio today, Iowa State men's basketball can be heard at 6 p.m. on KGYM. They play at Texas. Turning now to the Things to Do column, a benefit fundraiser, Fund the Future, Computer Science Education Night. Discover the world of computer science and technology skills with an engaging evening of hands-on exploration where you can experience materials and content used in the K-12 and adult education programs. That takes place at Nuboco, 415 12th Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids from 5 to 7 p.m. and the cost is $10. The History Center is hosting Swati Dandekar, who is a former ambassador state utility regulator and state legislator. She is now an advocate for the growth of renewable energy in Iowa as chairperson of Bright Future Iowa. That program is from 6 to 7 p.m. at the History Center today. The cost is 5 to 7 dollars. 
and library, or excuse me, literary category, Grant Wood Country Forum. This series is devoted to sparking conversation, curiosity, and creative writing related to Iowa's iconic artist, Grant Wood, and the beautiful land he painted. That is online with the Cedar Rapids Public Library. It's free, takes place from 6.30 to 8 p.m. You can reach that at crlibrary.org. Org. Also on that page, this story by the Gazette, Linmar Students Win Future Cities Competition. More than 30 teams of middle school students from across Iowa competed January 20th at Maple Grove Elementary School in the annual Future Cities Contest. Their goal? To show how to design a 100% electrically powered city using energy generated from sources that keep their citizens and the environment healthy and safe. And, of course, to take home the top trophy. Our goal at NUBOCO is to give students access to innovative and engaging STEM education, said Samantha Dalby, NUBOCO Director of K-12 Education and Future City Iowa Regional Coordinator. I really love the enthusiasm from the middle schoolers, and the creative ideas they come up with in this competition. Starting with the question, how can we make the world a better place? Sixth, seventh, and eighth grade students imagine, research, design, and build cities of the future that showcase their solution to a citywide sustainability issue. Through the fall, competitors work in teams of three students or more, along with a teacher and mentors, to bring their vision of their future city to life. During the competition, students are required to share a city essay to build a physical model of their city using recycled materials and prep a seven-minute presentation. In the end, students from Linmar Oak Ridge took first place overall on January 20 with their city titled Kota Kewa. Cedar Rapids Taft finished second, followed by Waukee South, Center Point Urbana and Innovation Initiative. Linmar Oak Ridge advances to the National Future City Awards competition in March. Dalby noted that the students who compete in future cities have far more to gain than just learning about engineering. If you're curious about researching things, building things, being creative, working with a team, there's a role for everyone in this competition, she said. Future City Iowa is made possible by the support of regional sponsors Shive Hattery, Bankers Trust, Iowa Solar Pros, ITC, and the McGrath family of dealerships. Special award sponsors include National Council of Eng Examiners for Engineering and Surveying, Society of Women Engineers, East Central Iowa, the Curiosity Path, PMI Education Foundation, Alliant, Benchmark, Women in Aviation, ITC West, Paychex, IEEE, -E, and Future City, Iowa. NUBOCO serves as the coordinator for the regional Iowa Future Cities event. For more information, you can learn more by visiting NUBOCO forward slash education slash K-12 slash Future City. Returning to a top Iowa story, Bill Northey, former Iowa Ag Secretary, dies at 64. This story by Aaron Jordan. 
Governor Kim Reynolds ordered flags lowered to half-staff Monday to honor Bill Northey, the former Iowa Agriculture Secretary and a U.S. Department of Agriculture Undersecretary who died at age 64. Northey, a Spirit Lake Republican, served as Secretary of the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Lad Stewardship from 2007 to 2018, when former President Donald Trump named him Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation at the USDA, a position he filled until 2021. He was Chief Executive Officer for the Agribusiness Association of Iowa in Des Moines when he died. Bill was a great leader whose work ethic and passion for Iowa agriculture was unmatched. Iowans and farmers around the country were fortunate to have such a rock-solid advocate and friends, Reynolds said in a statement. Iowa Agriculture's Secretary Mike Nag said he was in shock at the news of Northey's unexpected passing. Nag said his predecessor had a positive impact in Iowa and beyond on issues including soil conservation, water quality, renewable energy, foreign animal disease preparedness and trade. This is an incredible loss for our state, for agriculture, and for everybody who knew and loved Bill, Nig said in a statement. When Northey left Iowa for Washington, D.C., he told the Gazette about some of the challenges and accomplishments of his time leading the state's agriculture agency. The 2015 bird flu outbreak, Northey said, was probably the worst time for in their professional careers, in their farm families' lives. Northey described his USDA role as performing customer-facing pieces, including crop insurance, conservation reserve, farm loans, and the Natural Resources Conservation Service. He said in 2019 there were hurdles to providing that cover crops reduce risk of loss so farmers who implemented this practice could get a discount on crop insurance. How do we make use or excuse me make sure of that cover crop use? He asked in a Gazette interview. With yields, we'll send an adjuster out. It can be done, but there's a lot of versions that need to happen. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley said Monday his family has been friends with the Northeast for two generations since 1980. Bill Northey was a dear friend and fierce advocate for the family farmer, he said in a statement. As Iowa's Secretary of Agriculture and Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation at the United States Department of Agriculture, under President Trump, Bill's commitment to agriculture, biofuels, and conservation were unmatched. State Auditor Rob Sand, the lone Democrat in state office in Iowa, also praised Northey. Bill Northey always treated people with kindness, and despite disagreements, I never doubted his commitment to public service or his love for the state we both call home. I send my heartfelt condolences to Bill's wife Cindy and their three children as they grieve the loss of their beloved husband and father. Flags will be at half-staff until sunset of the day of Northeast funeral, plans of which have not been announced by Monday afternoon. Finishing up with the top weather story by Hannah Messier, what happens during a La Nina winter? Similar to El Nino's, La Ninas also impact weather patterns in North America. In winters during a La Nina, dry and warm conditions develop in the southern United States, wetter than normal conditions in the Ohio River Valley and part of the Pacific Northwest, and cooler than normal conditions in the northern Midwest. 
in Iowa well, or excuse me, below normal temperatures can occur during a La Nina. In addition to the colder temperatures, sometimes Iowa can see less precipitation than normal during a La Nina. There was a La Nina in 2021-22, during which there were cooler than normal temperatures and below normal precipitation. Another La Nina occurred during the winter of 2020-21, when there were cooler than normal temperatures and slightly more precipitation than normal. Partly cloudy today and mostly cloudy tomorrow, with, de- with, uh, with increased wind for tomorrow, High today of 51, 54 for tomorrow. Our normal high is 30, the normal low is 13. We set a record high of 61 degrees in 1925, a record low of 18 below zero in 1982. Sunset tonight at 5.28 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 7.13 a.m. gives us 10 hours and 14 minutes of daylight. And we're in the waning crescent moon phase with moonrise at 5.55 a.m. and set at 2.34 p.m. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access today's reading online at the iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening. Have a great, safe day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Sometimes we have too much electricity, but more often, grid operators are carefully managing its production to be sure that we have enough. So, a lot of work has gone into trying to store excess electricity to use later when we need it. The obvious solution, giant batteries, is still too expensive for most applications and has environmental implications. This has led scientists to look for other ways. One method uses surplus power to compress air and pump it into old salt mines. The salt tends to seal cracks in the walls, making the mines airtight. When needed, the compressed air can be released to turn a turbine, or it can be used as the intake air for a natural gas power plant, making the plant more productive. Another way to store excess energy is to pump water uphill into existing reservoirs and then release it through hydroelectric dams when power is needed. This method was pioneered 100 years ago in Italy and Switzerland and is used today around the world and in many U.S. states, like Michigan. On the Chilean coast, they're even experimenting with using solar energy to pump seawater up a cliff where it could flow down to make power at night. These solutions don't make economic sense unless the electricity is very cheap and the reservoir was already built for another purpose. But when those two things are present, pumping air and water to store energy plays a valuable role in balancing the grid to meet our ever-changing power demands. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.